Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. This is the Average Conservationist podcast brought to you by Outdoor Class and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Outdoor Class is the new single source of premium outdoor education from trusted, knowledgeable experts. For hunters committed to improving their skills, Outdoor Class is the only subscription-based e-learning platform that provides unlimited access to video lessons from the world's most respected experts covering topics across a hunter's entire journey. Learn from industry leaders like Corey Jacobson, Randy Newberg, Remy Warren, and other prominent personalities and organizations. Sign up today and use code AVERAGE to save 20%. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for Conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. Happy Wednesday. Welcome back to the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Doug Tallamy, and Doug is one of the founders of a conservation organization called Homegrown National Park. And what is so cool about this, uh, and really the premise behind Homegrown National Park, is essentially for homeowners um, to essentially convert part of their own yard, their own property um, to their own national park. Uh, And Doug does a much better job of really explaining kind of what that means, how um, they encourage their members or, uh, you know, just how they encourage people to go out and do that. And Doug quotes it. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but something along the lines of, uh, you know, I'm not even, even going to butcher it. I'm just going to let Doug talk about it. Um, but, you know, Doug, as far as kind of what, I guess, qualifies him um, to kind of lend um, an opinion, um, his expertise is, uh, Doug is, <clears throat> he's a professor of agriculture in the Department of Entomology and Wildlife Ecology uh, at the University of Delaware. 
Um, he's been teaching courses there for 41 years. Um, so he has just a great deal of knowledge and experience when it comes to, you know, wildlife, uh, native plants, uh, insects, you know, what the whole ecosystem um, looks like, even um, from, you know, much larger animals to, you know, the things that they're eating, that's that they're eating, that they're eating, that they're eating, and so on and so forth down the line. So it's it's really um, incredible uh, when you kind of hear Doug talk about this and and just the the passion that he has for it. I mean, if you've been doing anything for uh, you know as long as Doug's been you know teaching about you know entomology and wildlife ecology, I mean, you you've developed a, a certain uh, relationship with that topic, um, and I'd imagine. For Doug, it's hard to, to really kind of just put that down. That um, you know, not only has Doug and his business partner uh, founded Homegrown National Park, uh, and not only has he been um, teaching at a university for this long, uh, he's also he's also he's also also authored or co-authored four separate books um, that are out there as well. Um, you know, all in all, it's uh, it's a really fascinating conversation um, and. The idea behind Homegrown National Park, I think, is one that uh, is something that's very easy for um, every homeowner um, to do, to participate in, um, and you know, make a difference in their own in their own backyard, in their own community, um, without you know having to do um, a ton of work. So, uh, great episode, week two of Org Month, um, and another um, great one. So. Episode 123 with Doug Tallamy. Uh, enjoy it. Today's episode is actually going to be brought to you by my friends over at Stone Glacier. Stone Glacier uh, has been down with the podcast since day one. Uh, one of the, the very first partner on the podcast. Um, a great group of, of guys and gals over there. A great company, uh, obviously, with a tremendous product. Um, if you haven't already, download the Stone Glacier app. You can get that on iTunes or Google Play, um, and just keep up with you know everything that go or excuse me Stone Glacier has going on. Um, just a ton of great products. Continue to come out with new packs, um, new uh, outerwear, base layers, all that good stuff. Um, they've really got something to cover you um, for really whatever the situation calls for. Um, you know they're primarily um, focused on you know Western uh, style hunting. Um, but as a Midwest guy here, I've found a ton of use um, for a lot of their products as well, including uh, the Skyline Bino Harness, uh, which is, I've been using that for the last two years now, and it is, um, it's a dream to use, easy to fit, can fit a multitude of size of uh, binos, um, super quiet, super easy to use. So highly recommend checking that out. Uh, and you can find that at stoneglacier.com. Uh, today's episode is also going to be brought to you by Wild Rivers Coffee. Marshall and Sammy, the owners of Wild Rivers Coffee, um, are two individuals who are just as passionate about um, coffee as they are conservation. So at Wild Rivers Coffee, they're roasting in small batches so that they can ensure your coffee arrives at its peak freshness. Wild Rivers is also a proud partner with 2% for Conservation, and they believe, uh, Wild Rivers believes in preserving the wild places and wild things that bring all of us so much joy. That's why with everything you purchase from them, portions of those proceeds are going to be donated back to conservation organizations that are near and dear to them. Uh, so you're going to get orgs like RMEF, Trout Unlimited, BHA, Ducks Unlimited. So 
head over to wildriverscoffeeco.com, grab your fresh roasted beans, uh, have some really sweet handmade mugs, some sweet merch as well. Uh, and if you subscribe today, you're going to save 10%. So again, head over to wildriverscoffeeco.com. All right, Doug Tallamy, welcome to the show. How are you this morning? I'm fine. Well, How are uh, you? I'm doing well, thank you. I uh, I appreciate you making some time today. Um, as I mentioned just before we started recording here, I've been uh, looking over the website and, and trying to really brush up and, and learn more about homegrown national parks. So uh, I'm certainly excited to to learn a bit more about it today. Uh, I, I am happy to tell you about it. <laughs> oh, no, that's great. So, <clears throat> excuse me, Doug, before we really get into uh, to all of that, why don't you tell me a bit about yourself? Give me some of your background. All right. I'm, uh, I'm an entomologist at the University of Delaware. I have been there for 41 years. Um, people always want to know how I got into this, and I, I tell them I was, I was born loving nature, and I, I think that's the way it goes. You know, I have a brother and a sister. We all raised in the same same house, same experiences. But they don't have that. They're not drawn to nature in the same way I am. Um, so, you know, not taking any credit for it. I just love it. And, and that has directed my life right from the very beginning. I discovered entomology in a course in at Allegheny College my junior year, taught by Robert Bugby. And if you're taught entomology by Robert Bugby, you become an entomologist. <laughs> and that's, that's what happened. <laughs> um, I didn't get to where I am today. Um, I studied insect behavior for about 25 years, really interesting stuff. But the conservation end of, of what I'm doing really happened after my wife and I moved into a property in, in uh, Oxford, Pennsylvania. It was a farm that was broken up into 10-acre lots thoroughly invaded with, with non-native plants. And that was the process that, that got me to realize, um, you know, using plants from other continents uh, and then having them escape into our natural areas is, is uh, really detrimental to local food webs because our local insects can't eat those plants. So it really clobbers the insect population. Then you don't have enough insects for the birds to reproduce. So they start to decline and you have this, this vicious cycle all because we're, we're not, we're not looking at the functionality of the plants we choose for our human-dominated landscapes, and because so many of our landscapes are human-dominated, and we've got 135 million acres of, of residential landscapes, uh, and and 85% of our woody invasive plants that are in just about all of our natural areas are escapees from our gardens. So we've had a huge impact on the natural spaces and the unnatural spaces in the U.S. because of our plant choices. How is it that, and you mentioned um, a lot of these non-native species coming from like other countries and things like that. How is it that that these species or these plant species are able to kind of reproduce or to to multiply in the way that they are? Because uh, I think about um, you know uh, like habitat in uh, in the woods, for example. Uh, I love to deer hunt, and there's a lot of um, non-native um, kind of shrubs and brushes that pop up that kind of cause a lot of havoc, a lot of chaos, um, and kind of almost drowned out a lot of the, the smaller plants that, that may live kind of in that area. How are they, they reproducing like that? 
Well, there are two, two factors. First of all, most of those plants, again, are escapees from the horticultural trade. They, we planted, we bought them in nurseries, we planted them in our garden. Many of them make berries. The birds do eat those berries. And people say, oh, they're great for the birds. Well, not really, because the birds are reproducing on insects, not, not berries. But they eat the berries, they fly out into the woods, they poop the seed out, and that's, that's how those plants move around. Now, why do they take over? There's two reasons. They're here without any of their natural enemies. So there's, there's very few insects eating them. There's no diseases. So they're in a, a, an enemy-free space, which gives them a real competitive advantage over our native plants. The other big one, you, you mentioned it, is deer. Deer don't like these plants. So they eat all the natives. They don't touch the, the autumn olive and the barberry and the burning bush and the, the bush honeysuckle. and the Yeah, those are all ones that I was thinking of. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So again, the competitive balance has shifted. You get a baby oak tree pops pops up above the ground and deer eats it the first day, but it won't touch this other stuff. So of course that's all we have left. So deer overabundance is another major part of this this story. And I think it feels like, and we'll we'll certainly take a deeper dive into this as as the conversation goes on. But all of these things being intertwined, um, you know what's what's good for this is good for that is good for that is good for that. Like it's, it's, it's a food chain. It's an ecosystem. Everything is relying upon one another, uh, for balance and all of that. And when, yeah, something is presented that throws that balance out of whack, then yeah, you start to see, um, you know, the real trickle down effect from, from one species to the next. Yeah. I often talk about nature being a series of of very specialized interactions. Not all the interactions are specialized, but most of them are. Uh, and these are interactions largely between animals and plants that have evolved over, over the eons. So when you bring in a plant that has not interacted with local animals, you don't have that specialized interaction. Um, so so you've, we've, got, we've built these, these um, assemblages of species. I'm not going to call them communities because they're not interacting very much, but they're assemblages of species uh, that – they don't know each other. They, they, they um, you know, they're just starting to meet each other in evolutionary time. So 10,000, 100,000 years from now, will we have more functional ecosystems? Yeah, but in the meantime, we're losing an awful lot of species. Um, you know, we've, we've got 3 billion fewer breeding birds today than we had uh, just 50 years ago. We've got global insect decline. The UN says we're going to lose a million species in the next next 20 years, and most of those will be insects. And, and much of that, I mean, there's a lot of ways we're killing our insects, but taking away the vital plants that produce them is one of the major causes of insect declines. Yeah, and you you mentioned something. You have this this quote on your website, which I thought was was very um, it was very well put. That's uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna read this here. So it says, "What if each American landowner converted half of his or her yard to produce native plant communities?" Even moderate success could collectively restore some semblance of ecosystem functions to more than 20 million acres of what is now ecological wasteland. I think it's a it's a great yeah. statement. And my question is, is what or how how are we kind of or are you defining or the, um, you know, the 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 world that I guess that we live in or, or work in, um, you know, as an entomology uh, is working in entomology. What defines ecological wasteland? Well, the quote you just read was referring to the acreage that we have in lawn right now. 
Okay. We've got uh, when I made that it was about four, 40 million acres in lawn. It's now up to about 44 million acres of lawn, which is an area bigger than New England, dedicated to this ecological deadscape. And the reason I say that is there are four things that every landscape needs to be doing, needs to be accomplishing if we're going to reach a sustainable relationship with the natural world that supports us. It's got to support a complex community of pollinators, not because they pollinate our agriculture, but because they're pollinating you know, 90% of all flowering plants and 80% of all plants. That's one thing. We've got to sequester carbon, got to pull as much carbon out of the atmosphere and tie it up in plant tissues and then pump it into the ground through plant roots as possible. We've got to manage watersheds. Every single landscape is in a watershed and destroying that watershed is just you know, not, not ethically uh, viable. Right. And the fourth thing uh, we need to do is support that complex food web. So plants are, are capturing energy from the sun and turning it into simple sugars and carbohydrates. That's the food that supports just about all the animals on the planet. But if that food doesn't get from plants to the animals, then you don't have animals. You don't have a functioning ecosystem that's producing the life support that we humans need. So pollinators, food web, carbon sequestration, and managing the watershed. Lawn, turf grass, is terrible at doing every one of those. <laughs> it's, it's the worst plant choice you could have for, for doing any one of those, those goals. So that's why I call it an ecological deadscape. It's there, particularly the way we treat it. I mean, we, we mow it every week. So there goes your carbon sequestration. We, we put um, fertilizer too much, uh, which is laced with uh, broad spectrum uh, herbicides that are going to kill everything except uh, grass. Right. Um, you know, just full of toxins. We, we put insecticides down there just in case there's, there's a chinch bug or something. So it's a toxic wasteland that is not doing accomplishing any of the four goals that every landscape needs to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, those are, are all, I mean, that makes complete sense. And I've seen, um, or maybe I've just uh, recently paid attention to it, uh, but I think uh, there's been this movement uh, in recent years. Um, it's called like No Mow May, where people are not cutting right. their grass. And uh, I think it's the month of May. Is that right? Right, right. And um, yeah, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I, I, the idea is a good one. And the idea is to uh, allow some of the plants in your yard to actually reach flowering stage so that you can support some pollinators. The problem is pollinators aren't just around in May. Right. Uh, so you, you don't mow your, your lawn in May and then you mow it in June. You kill everything that you just promoted, including all the pollinators that are depending on what you just created. What we really need is no mow areas that we never mow. Not just, you know, in May. Almost little so sanctuaries. The idea is right, but it, it needs to be tweaked a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I think the the thought or the the idea behind it is in the right place. It's just it's it's not uh it's it's good in the time that it's there, but the the long term effects are are not being really um capitalized on, I guess. Right, right. Um, and, you know, if you are using the fertilizer with the, uh, the broadleaf herbicides in it, you just have tall grass that still won't help any pollinators. You need clover, you need dandelions, you need, you need as many flowering plants as possible to help at least the generalist bees, like the bumblebees and the honeybees, 
specialist bees and a third of our 4,000 species of native bees can only reproduce on the pollen of particular plants. And they won't be in your lawn no matter what, whether you mow it or not. So what we really need to do if we're going to help the pollinators is, is plant pollinator gardens that are designed to support those native species that rely on, on special plants. Plants like goldenrod and native asters, perennial sunflowers, things like that, evening primrose. They're supporting a lot of specialist bees, and those are the ones we need to focus on because the generalists can use the, the specialized plants as well as the specialists. Okay. So, Doug, you mentioned kind of early on that when I was asking you a bit about your background that um, the – your, your choice to kind of, or how you landed on entomology and wildlife ecology is that you were, you know, you were just drawn to the outdoors, you know, from a very young age. What did, you know, being drawn to the outdoors, what did that look like to you? I mean, was it, you know, just poking around in the woods, you know, going camping, going hiking? I mean, how, you know, how was that kind of cultivated, you know, throughout the early part of your life? It was all of those. Um, I was like, most other little boys, I didn't know anything about insects, but I sure liked turtles and snakes and lizards, and I collected all of them. All the good I had, stuff. I had pet snakes, pet snakes right into college. Um, and th if you have a snake, you've got to collect the food to feed that snake. Uh, my Much of my uh, youth was spent camping in North Jersey at a place called Deer Lake, uh, and it was a lake. It had woods. It had everything. So yeah, I spent all day long running around the woods and looking in the water and looking everywhere in the streams. It was it was a wonderful uh, exposure to the natural world. Yeah, and it's amazing. Um, and that... you know, it's 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 what so many of our kids are missing today. They don't have that opportunity, uh, and it's a, it's a shame. Yeah, I mean, that was where the next words out of my mouth was. It's it's a shame, and it's amazing how much times have changed in terms of like, I think, you know, I'm in my late thirties now. I think about my upbringing and you know how I was, you know, a lot of the same things poking around in the woods, just almost like being self-taught about all these different things kind of in the natural world, um, trying to, to gain or glean some type of understanding from you know, the things that you're digging up, whether it's you're looking for worms to go fishing or you're just, you know, poking around in the garden and you're seeing all these bugs and different insects like you mentioned. And now it's just, it's not that way, unfortunately. And, you know, maybe part of that is, I mean, obviously technology plays a, a big role in that, but I think it also can probably come back to uh, the quote that we just talked about with all these ecological wastelands that, you know, I was fortunate that, you know, a, a three minute bike ride down the road from my house. I had, you know, a bunch of, you know, woods and, and wetlands and things like that, that I could go explore on, you know, now where I live, uh, I, my kids don't have that, that opportunity. Right. Yeah. 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 Most of that is gone. It's, it's, it's a terrible shame. Also, you know, our culture has, has adopted this risk-free attitude. If you let your kids go out and play, somebody calls the cops on you for parental, parental abuse and, or child abuse and, so it's it's crazy. Um, I mean, when we grew up, we left early in the morning, and my parents said, "Come back at dinner time," and yep. <laughs> that was it. Yeah, and a, a lot of the times, and, yeah, and a lot of times you had to rely on at least someone in your friend group to have a watch or to have some way of knowing what time yeah, it was. Otherwise, 
you know, it was just yeah. guess. It was just guesswork at that point. Yeah, actually, where we grew up, they had a six o'clock whistle in the center of the town. It would go off, and so we'd know at least when it was six o'clock. So, <laughs> oh, there you go. We we didn't have an excuse. Yeah. Yeah. So, Doug, with with all the work that you've done in your career in the field of entomology and wildlife ecology, what was it that brought you to the point of looking to start homegrown national park or yeah? Uh, well, you know, all right. The, the concept of homegrown national park really started. I remember very, very clearly. It was a Sunday morning and I came across the statistic. It was a 2005 statistic that we had 40 million acres of lawn. Uh, and I remember sitting at the dining room table thinking, well, well, gee, what if we cut that area in half? That would give us 20 million acres we could put towards conservation. Uh, and if we did that at home, you know, maybe that'd be big enough to create a new national park. We could call it Homegrown National Park. So I start adding up how big is 20 million acres. I start adding the, the area of Yellowstone and Yosemite and the Smokies and all our major national parks. And you add them all up, it's still less than 20 million acres. So I said, wow, Homegrown National Park could be the biggest park in the country. And I started talking about it in my talks. It wasn't until I wrote uh, Nature's Best Hope that I, I wrote a chapter about Homegrown National Park. But it didn't, it didn't come into being uh, in terms of a nonprofit until I met Michelle Alfandari, who um, she was a businesswoman who had just retired from Manhattan and moved to Connecticut. Um, one, of, one of her neighbors uh, brought her to one of my talks. She, she didn't know anything about nature and you know, just wasn't into this at all. Um, but to be, you know, <laughs> to keep up uh, neighborly relationships, she agreed to come to the talk, uh, and and she listened. She was she was fascinated by the the um, the audience's reaction, uh, and she saw it as as essentially a marketing opportunity. She said she came up to me afterwards. She said, you know, um, this is a great message, but if you don't get it beyond the choir, beyond the people who come to your talks, it's never going to work. And I said, yeah, I know that. I said, but that requires social media and all the stuff that I don't do. She said, well, I do do that. <laughs> she said, we need to create this nonprofit. And we'll call it Homegrown National Park. And, and I was really dubious in the beginning because that's a lot of work. And, it's a, and you know, I, she said, you'll be the scientific advisor. and You won't have to do much. So, you know, with that, I said, okay, I, I agree. Of course, I've ended up doing more than than I wanted to, but it, of course. it really is important. We've got, you know, we've got more than 20,000 people have joined Homegrown National Park at this point. The, the object is to to reach the non-choir, to, to motivate people, to get the message that everybody, not just the tree huggers, but everybody has a responsibility to good earth stewardship. Most people don't know that. They think, well, the conservationists do that. They don't realize that their yard is an important part of conservation. Um, they don't realize the extent to which we have a biodiversity crisis, and they don't they don't understand at all that that they really can play a role in turning this around. So that's what the that's what the nonprofit is all about is getting that message to go viral across the country. We've got this map that um, when people join, and it's free, by the way. You register your property and the amount of area that you actually are going to be a good steward of, and that little piece of your county lights up. Uh, and the goal is that uh, 
um, eventually the entire country is going to light up and we can see who's participating, who's not, where we have um, strong conservation efforts and where we need to work harder. The connectivity between natural areas, all that should show up on this, this map. Um, so it's, you know, we've got a, we've got a global biodiversity crisis, but the solution is a grassroots solution. If we can get everybody on board. It, it divides this giant problem up into manageable, you know, manageable um, efforts. You don't have to worry about the entire planet's problem. Just worry about what's happening on your property. And that's very manageable. You can get rid of your invasive plants. You can reduce the area you have in line and you can plant the, the important natives that are going to uh, support the food web and all the birds and everything else. Those are, those are manageable things that everybody can do. So that's the goal. And we're off to a pretty good start. Yeah. I mean, there's a, it's, it, the way you talk about it uh, in terms of, you know, if focusing on, you know, essentially what you can control um, as a, as a homeowner, as an individual. And to me, that message um, rings so true because it would, if you've if you've listened to any of the previous podcasts of mine, I always the last thing I always say before I end it is conservation starts with you, and I, I firmly believe that because it doesn't you know one uh, Jared Fraser, the executive director of Two Percent, he's come on the podcast multiple times and talked about you know conservation is not a competition, and again that's something that I completely agree with, and doing your part um, is is where it all starts you know and that's. In this particular case, turning your your homestead or a portion of your 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 yard, your homestead into um, you know a more biodiverse area, and it's it's not something that's difficult. You just have to make the commitment to doing it. Yeah, it's it's really all about plant choice. You choose the right plants. It doesn't mean that it has to be wild and messy. Uh, notice I say reduce the area of lawn, not get rid of it, because lawn is a great cue for care. The area of lawn that you have, we keep it mowed, we keep it manicured, and that tells your neighbors that you understand what the culture is and you're part of it. You're just going to have more plants in your yard. And if you choose the right plants, most people don't know the difference between a ginkgo and an oak. Uh, well, there's a huge difference biologically. Ginkgos don't add anything to the food web, and oaks add more than any other plant in the country. So, you know, a simple choice like that can make a huge difference without upsetting your neighbors in, in any way. So do you guys have um, essentially, I guess, like resources uh, that are available to, to people that, that want to put their, um, you know, home on the map or, or become part of Homegrown National Park uh, in terms of if they're, you know, in this region of the country, these are plants that we, you know, suggest um, – you know, that you plant, these are, you know, native plants that'll help, um, you know, historically the, the wildlife and, and all the, the plant or the, um, insects and everything that are in that region. Right. Um, yeah, we call those keystone plants. They're the ones that are contributing the most energy to food webs. I mentioned oaks cause they're the very best keystone plant in 84% of the counties in which they occur. Um, there's a, a, uh, tool on the National Wildlife Federation website called Native Plant Finder. Uh, so that's, if you go to our website, homegrownnationalpark.org, you can find that, that tool. Then you put in your zip code and the ranked uh, list of plants, both woody plants and herbaceous plants that are best in your county, 
will pop up. So we don't have to guess anymore which the best plants are. It's all, all right there. We also have a resource page. So the people that are selling these plants, um, landscape designers, uh, we need to expand that a lot because the country's big. But uh, it gets people started on where they can actually get help. The reality is most people don't garden themselves. They hire somebody. And we really need to expand uh, the, the career option that I call ecological landscapers or ecological gardeners. So the people that don't have the time or don't have the interest, but they know it's what they ought to do, can just hire somebody and say, you do it. It would be just like hiring the, the lawn service, only it's going to be a lot more productive than the lawn service. That's where I want to go eventually. But yeah, our, our website is, is full of information to get you started. Yeah. Now, how long in your experience, Doug, it, does it take for you know someone who decides to actively participate in, in turning um, a portion of their lawn into uh, you know their own homegrown national park? How long do you think before the the results are there for for kind of that you know that small little ecosystem or that small little area that they have because i'd imagine that when you're dealing with you know pollinators small insects and birds a lot of what is taking place is it's you're not seeing it right like you're not seeing a tree grow um and then you know potentially uh, you know animals coming in to feed off of that or whatever the case is you know these are it, this is a much uh, smaller um, kind of scale of, of animals and insects that are, are utilizing these things? Well, you'd be surprised. You see it a lot faster than you think. I've got a picture of a, uh, a pin oak uh, in its first year of life. It germinated from its acorn, and it's popped its head above the leaves there. There's a caterpillar standing on the ground eating the leaves of that plant. Now, that caterpillar is going to be bird food in just a few hours, so the bird that's going to eat that caterpillar will be in your yard. Um, in order to have breeding birds in your yard, you need thousands of caterpillars, and those oak trees and other things that you plant will produce those caterpillars. So you you will see wildlife come to your yard much faster than you would imagine. When we moved into our property, it had been mowed for hay. There wasn't anything here. And the very first year, I planted a bunch of acorns. So it's been 22 years now, but those those trees are 60, 70 feet tall now. Um, we have wood thrush breeding in our yard. That's a forest bird. And remember, we started from, from bare ground. So uh, it didn't take all that long. Uh, so, uh, and, and if, you're, if you're talking about you know, attracting pollinators, you will get them the very first season. As soon as that plant is in bloom, they're there. They're looking for forage uh, all the time. What's interesting is you get to record the new things that come to your yard each year. We've got a whole list of, of the, the species of birds that have started breeding here. And that. I remember when the gray tree frog first came and all these new things that are coming. I've been taking a picture of every species of moth that is now making a living at our, our house by taking a picture of the moth or its caterpillar. And I'm up to 1,195 species of just moths. Wow. Um, and all of, this, all of this has come because we put the plants back. Uh, and it started coming right away, so it's really rewarding. Uh, you don't, you know, have to go looking for that stuff, but it will be there. Uh, so you, th that's positive reinforcement to show that that you really have made a difference uh, right where you live, and that's you know people like that. People are concerned about the, these these biodiversity losses. The problem is they think there's nothing they can do about it. 
we have this notion that humans and nature cannot coexist, and that's the way we've lived for you know an awful long time. That's why you have to turn around. The only the only long term sustainable solution on this planet is for humans and nature to coexist. We all live in the same place, so learning how to do that is is our goal. Uh, and the reason we have to do that is we need functional ecosystems everywhere, not just in parks and preserves. So we now have to practice conservation outside of parks and preserves. And again, that's what homegrown national parks all about. Yeah, no, I, I I could not agree more. How long did it take for you and Michelle to to really get Homegrown National Park um, up and running and off the ground? Well, it's, we're just pushing the two year mark now. Okay. Um, so we had uh, about six months before that. Neither one of us actually wanted to do a nonprofit because of all the all the paperwork and the board and all the things <laughs> that is involved with a nonprofit. Um, but it ended up being that way because it was the most logical thing to do. Otherwise, you've got to generate some kind of uh, a profit. <laughs> right. We right. weren't about you know selling things either. So, so we fooled around for for you know six months or so with kind of false starts, and then realized, well, I really do have to do a, a nonprofit. So, um, the map has been uh, functional for about you know a little bit more than a year and a half now. That has been the hardest part. I mean, that's our the visual part of the website that people get excited about, but it requires hiring a tech company. Um, and actually we're, we're our second tech company. Um, you'd, you'd think that it'd be easy to do. It's not <laughs> easy to do. And then, <laughs> then getting everybody's data and, you know, do we do it through zip codes or do we do it uh, through addresses and a lot of complications there, protecting privacy, so uh, we're still actually working that. We've got map version one. We're getting ready to launch map version two, which will be a lot more user-friendly uh, and offer a lot more information. That's where the entire country is going to light up instead of just, just your county. Uh, map version three will actually uh, present the, the plants that people put in, the actual species, so we can, we can look at that. It can become a, a research tool um, if, we, if we keep developing it. But all this requires technological savvy that we don't have. So you got to hire a company. They're real expensive and oh, yeah. it takes more time, time than we have. Um, we're, you know, we, we get emails all the time. Oh, you should do this. You should do this. Get somebody in your team to do this. Well, we need to build a team first. <laughs> the, you know, the, it's, it's all gone through volunteer efforts um, up, up till now. And we've got to move beyond that where we have, we have paid positions and, yeah, we're getting there. We're getting some some donations that that are helping a lot. Um, so it's it's a building process. Michelle says all the time, this cannot be a slow build. You know, the the biodiversity crisis is is real and happening right now. So we can't. I calculated once if we added a thousand acres to to Homegrown National Park a month, it would take us eleven thousand years to reach our goal. Oh wow, <laughs> that's a little too. Too slow, so, so yeah. we needed to uh, we needed to just explode in in terms of activity, um, so that we. I mean, the real goal is to change the culture, so that everybody knows conservation is not optional; it's essential. It's everybody's responsibility. It's the norm. You know, if you if you have plants in your yard, you're not going to get fined by your civic association because everybody knows we need these things. I want people to recognize that, that we need biodiversity as much as we need water. 
as much as we need uh, to work on climate change. They're all related. Um, and and it is accelerating. It's happening. So uh, our goal at Hungar National Park is to keep up with the momentum that that uh, um, we've we've started to generate. Yeah, I mean, over twenty thousand members uh, that you mentioned already in just uh, just a few short years. I think that's incredible. And I think, and maybe this is just me living in a bit of a bubble in you know in the area that I live in, but. You know, the, the neighborhood, the subdivision that I live in is a very kind of tight-knit community to some degree. Um, you know, a lot of the neighbors are very close with one another, a lot of kids with, you know, within the same age group and and things like that. But I feel like in an area like where I'm in, and, you know, my, my subdivision is maybe, I don't know, 120 homes, something like that, that even if, you know, if, if I'm the first one to do this and then I'm talking to, you know, the two neighbors that live on either side of me or someone who lives across the street from me about, you know, why I'm doing this and why I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, I just think about the impact that that our little subdivision could have if even just half of, of the homes within the subdivision take just a small chunk of their their backyard and, you know, replant that with um, excuse me, with native plants and things like that and watch how that works because there's you know a good portion of these homes here that that back up to you know like a small chunk of woods or something like that so it's mm-hmm. not like it's going to really mm-hmm. you know put this big divide between a home you know that's behind them or something along those lines right you mentioned the word backyard so i'm going to push back on that and say don't forget the front yard if we only talk about backyard habitat we've cut our conservation opportunity in half and it also implies that when you add that oak tree to your yard, it's so ugly, you've got to hide it in the backyard. And that is not true. You can put that in the front yard. So I talk about yards instead of backyards. Um, and I'm sure in that 120 home neighborhood you live in, somebody can put something in their front yard too. Yeah. I like that. I like that you, that you called me on that because I've never, I've never <laughs> looked at it that way. Right. I've always been like, Oh, the front yard and the backyard. And maybe it's yeah. just because like our backyard is fenced in because we have, you know, young kids and dogs and things like that. But you're absolutely right. It's, it's the yard as a whole because, you know, sun hits the, the front of the house differently than it hits the back of the house. So it's, it's yeah. its own yeah. little area. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's very diverse from front to back and all the way around. So yeah, that's, right. uh, that's very good. So Doug, you know, not only have you, you know, done all this tremendous work in, in the field of entomology, uh, wildlife ecology, um, starting homegrown national park. You're also, uh, you know, a published author, uh, what is it four times over? I believe. I'll call, I'll say three and a half because <laughs> one was a co-author with Rick Dar. <laughs> so, all right. I'm going to give you the over on this though, but right. <laughs> how, what it was what is the process like you know going into to writing a book and and what really kind of sparks that fire for you to say okay um you know the, here's a topic that that i i just feel there should be more on or that i want to write on kind of walk me through that process of of writing a book and then um all that goes into it uh, okay that's a good question because um i did not set out to write any books but we started doing research on the impact of non-native plants on, on local food webs and bird clubs started to invite me to talk about our research. And they started saying, you know, we want to read something about this. 
course, we were just we'd just gotten grants. We hadn't written anything yet. We, you know, most of the the experiments were underway. So I said, you know, there there is nothing to read. And I said that for a year, and then finally, kind of out of self defense, I said, all right, I'll write a pamphlet. Uh, and I did, but the pamphlet got a little long. And <laughs> it became <laughs> it became the first book, Bringing Nature Home. But it was a response to what the people who were interested in um, really wanted to hear. And I, I laid the book out based on questions that I would get at every single talk. You know, why do we need biodiversity? What, what do insects have to do with it? Um, on and on and on. And and I wrote it directly for the public because they were the one asking. You know, I'm, my background is academia. If you write a book for other scientists, it's a big deal because you know they're going to criticize it <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> so you got to have a thousand references and, and all all the data. I did have a lot of data, but Timber Press made me take it out. He said, people don't want to see that. I said, well, how did they know I'm telling the truth? Yeah. So Bring Nature Home did not have a lot of data in it. But um, I published it, and I also – I knew nothing about the you know, the world of publishing. And I thought, I thought, well, now that I've written a book, I won't have to give any more talks because people can just read about it. But of course, it's just the opposite. If you write a book, then everybody wants you to go talk about it. Yeah, and absolutely. Even if they do read the book, they want you to talk about it. Everyone's got follow-ups. So the first book, yeah, the first book happened because of what the public wanted. And it was 10 years before I wrote the second book, um, the, the Nature's Best Hope book, because we had learned a lot. When I wrote Bringing Nature Home, um, it was the very beginning. We were just starting to learn this stuff. Well, 10 years of research, we learned a lot. Uh, and the situation has gotten more dire. You know, all these scary statistics about uh, extinction crisis and everything had happened. And I really thought it was time for, for an, an update uh, and um, a little bit more motivation to get people to realize the, the urgency of this message. So that's the message in, bringing in, in Nature's Best Hope is you are Nature's Best Hope. We need you, everybody. Uh, and if you don't play the game, then we don't have any hope for nature. So that's the message there. Um, then my wife said, you know, you should write a book about oaks. And that was kind of a, just a fun book of what is, is using the oaks in our yard, what species. Uh, and that was easy because all I had to do is look out my window <laughs> each month of the year and record what was happening. Uh, and I really didn't think people would, would be very interested in that. But it turns out they, they are because it, it exposes an entire world of life that's happening on the trees in your yard that, that most people don't notice. You know, you need a little bit of knowledge to go out and find things. And, and once they have it, then knowledge generates interest and interest generates compassion. And I would say we need a lot more compassion towards the natural world. So absolutely, those were the reasons I wrote each one of those books. Um, it turned out to be easier than I thought it would be. You know, I'd write for an hour in the morning. Um, and, you know, each book took about a year, but that was that was it. I mean... First off, I have a, a great amount of respect and admiration for anyone who who publishes a book that's that that is not an author by trade because it's to me it just seems incredibly daunting. Like I know when it comes time for me to edit my podcast and publish it, and you know you have to do a small write up on on the conversation that you had, and you know I take notes throughout the course of this, but sometimes to to put together a paragraph takes me twenty minutes to do. And I just had the conversation, you know, 10 minutes ago. Um, 
so to to come up with you know two three four hundred pages however however long the book is um seems like such a daunting task and it's it's one that i like i said i i really admire in people that set out to do that if it's not something that they're doing for a living and what i oftentimes find too is is books like that or or written by people who are not again um you know full-time authors um tend to have their own style of writing and one that that I kind of appreciate because it's I read it more in the sense of having a conversation with someone uh, or, or just you know kind of retaining all this information instead of trying to be very prim and proper um, like you know right. uh, like someone would 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 typically read in you know a nonfiction or you know something like that yeah yeah that that's exactly right conversational tone I think is really important I was protected. I protected myself when I was writing Bringing Nature Home, and it was new by just, you know, I said, nobody's going to read this, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> if nobody's going to read it, I can just write it and not worry about it without worrying, you know, struggling with each sentence. And it, it became very conversational. I was surprised when people did read it. But uh, if I had worried about, um, you know, style and tone and all the things that that um, I guess my English teacher would have told me to worry <laughs> about it would have been much more laborious but I did I just had a conversation between me and the people that were interested uh, and then it became you know, it became pretty easy just like you I'm talking to you I would write it down and, and then it's done yeah you know I would have a goal you say working on one paragraph that was my goal each day I'm going to write one paragraph but Often, once you get that paragraph done, you say, well, here's the next one that has to happen. Um, I still had some time, so I'd move right on. And sometimes you get, you know, four, five, six paragraphs done uh, very quickly because it was you, you didn't lose the logical flow. Every once in a while, you had to struggle with a paragraph. But, um, and the other thing is to do it regularly so you don't have to start from scratch with your mental processes each time. So writing every day became an important part of it. Yeah, muscle memory. I, I totally understand that. So, you know, every every October, well, I say every. This is this this coming October will be um, the second time uh, that I've done it. But I I like to focus um, the entire month on just um, conservation organizations specifically. And um, Homegrown National Park uh, is a community partner with 2% for Conservation, who we partner with on the podcast here. So how was it, Doug, that you first learned about 2%? And then what did that process look like becoming involved and becoming a community partner with them? Well, it's very young. I mean, we just learned about 2%. Uh, and, and, um, again, this is where Michelle comes in. She's had, she's had the dealings with them and, and not me. Um, so yeah, I, I can't answer that, uh, very well, uh, other than I think it's, I think it's a great concept. Um, yeah, but, uh, and, and, and we're brand new, but you know, I, I, I <laughs> that's all I can say. Hey, that's all right. I'd rather you not try yeah. to, uh, feed me a line here. Um, when you're not yeah, I don't entirely have sure, <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. And yeah, one of the nice things uh, about 2% is, what they they really help pair um, people um, and businesses or organizations that fit what they what they care about 
right? So conservation, you know, if, if someone just reaches out to 2% and says, hey, uh, I want to start doing my part. Um, you know, I don't have a lot of time to, to go out and volunteer places. You know, what can I do? You know, this is where, where 2% will step in and say, hey, there's a, an organization called Homegrown National Park. This is what they do. This is where you can learn more information and just kind of send them your way. And they kind of become this uh, middleman between, you know, regular everyday people or businesses um, and these, you know, all these tremendous organizations that are out there um, doing um, you know, wonderful things for conservation, whether it's um, conservation as a whole or species specific type things. Um, so it's really um, incredible. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. Um, you have a company say, hey, I only put 2% of my profits towards conservation. I mean, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, especially for some of these so, large companies. Yeah, we, we certainly appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Doug, before I let you get out of here, uh, where can people find out? Uh, more and learn more about Homegrown National Park and sign up um, to help, you know, get rid of some of this ecological wasteland? You go to our website, homegrownnationalpark.org. It's all one word, uh, and it's all there. Okay. Well, Doug, thank you a ton for uh, taking some time to join me today. Uh, I certainly enjoyed learning more about Homegrown National Park, everything that that, um, you and Michelle are doing and growing there and, um, being part of the solution and not the problem. So thank you very much. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Marcus. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Doug, take care of yourself and look forward to talking to you soon. Okay, take care. All right. All right, well, thank you to Doug for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, Certainly enjoyed learning more about Homegrown National Park. Um, Definitely be sure and check them out uh, if what you heard today is something that you um, are interested in. I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast, Hardside Hydration, Stone Glacier, Go Hunt, Wild Rivers Coffee, Outdoor Class, and of course, 2% for Conservation. Um, Please be sure to go out and support these brands I just mentioned here um, that support this podcast and help make it possible. Uh, And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org, and there you're going to see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media, where it's going to be only positive conservation-driven content landing in your feeds. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on <laughs> you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Stay tuned next week. We have another great one. Also, be sure to head over to theaverageconservationist.com and uh, grab some merchandise to help support conservation in the process. So until next week, stay safe out there and remember that conservation starts with you.